Welcome back to the Joseph Cox Show. This week I'm only doing four faces of Torah, inspirational, political, trivial, and structural. I do go into a fair amount of detail, so bear with me and let me know if it's too much. As with last week, these Divrei Torah are also dedicated to the memory of someone who passed away recently. Her name was Sheila Rubenstein, and I'll tell you more about her and her connection to this Parsha at the end of the podcast. Now, these are difficult days. Many people are passing away. We should all do what we can to spread the positive impacts of those who have left us. I'm doing these podcasts in memory of these people in part because that's one way in which I can help. First off, inspirational. When I read this Parsha, I am struck by the attitudes of the people involved. On the one hand, there are two million Jews and they are afraid of 600 Egyptian chariots. There are literally 3,000 people per chariot and they are frozen with fear. This speaks to the slave mentality, which we'll get to in a bit. But what I want to focus on first in this section is the mentality of the Egyptians themselves. Yes, Hashem hardens the heart of Paro and his servants, but the Egyptian people are excluded from this group. They join Paro in his pursuit. Despite everything, they join Paro in his chase of the Jewish people. Later, Hashem says he will harden the heart of the Egyptians, but he never actually does so. He doesn't need to. Even after all the plagues, the Egyptian army is ready to plunge into the midst of a split sea in pursuit of their prey. Only when the wheels of their chariots begin to fall off, recognize and begin to flee. They cry out, let us flee from the face of Israel, because Hashem fights for them in Egypt. What took them so long? Let's take an Egyptian perspective. Yes, there were ten terrible plagues. Yes, they had pushed the Bnei Israel out, but that wasn't the end of the story. The Bnei Israel had claimed they would be gone for three days, but they had already violated that claim. They weren't trustworthy. The Bnei Israel said they were going to the wilderness to serve Hashem, but they had offered no sacrifices. And then the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud led the Jewish people into a trap, as if that was what God intended. The Egyptians themselves had been freed through the plagues. Remember, they had been slaved, enslaved by Yosef. Perhaps they believed that they were blessed and the Jewish people were simply the vehicle of their own redemption. Of course, it all seems like a stretch, but it is surprisingly easy to recast reality to tell whatever story you already happen to believe. We do it all the time. Just look at the economic analysis Republicans and Democrats engage in every day. No matter what the facts are, each side will find a way to have them tell their story. Hashem leaves the Egyptians able to think this way. He doesn't disabuse them of it. The pillar hides what is happening in front of them. It could be a buffer between the peoples, but it could also be a guidepost telling the Egyptians where they need to go. But once the waters split, how could the Egyptians still believe then? How could they not understand that something else was going on? How could they not actually need their hearts to be hardened in order to chase the Jewish people into the sea? I think the answer comes right before their moment of realization. And he took off their chariot wheels and made them to drive heavily so that the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel because Hashem fights for them in Egypt. They realize what is happening when the wheels of their chariots literally fall off. If we look back over the plagues, we see nature from the waters below to the waters above conspiring against Egypt. 
We see nature from the past to the future conspiring against Egypt. But technology? The creations of man? They had never turned against Egypt. Egypt's civilization was a story of humankind controlling and harnessing nature. They turned wheat and bacteria into bread. They made paper. They constructed massive pyramids and public works. By this time, in their story, they had learned to sail against the wind, and they had built ships as large as 360 tons, bigger than all three of Columbus's ships combined. They appeared to have mastered the use of concrete, with some arguing that the pyramids were actually poured concrete, not stone. The Egyptians were technological masters of their world. And that is why the Torah only tells us about their chariots. It doesn't tell us how many men they had mustered. That wasn't important. What was important was the number of ancient main battle tanks. This was the might of Egypt. And Hashem had not touched it. The Egyptians were masters of their world. They were gods because of their technology. And they were willing to chase the peoples into the waters because of their technology. And they fled, finally recognizing the totality of Hashem's power when that technology failed them, when the wheels came off and the chariots began to drive heavily. Interestingly, they don't say Hashem is fighting Kenegat Egypt against Egypt. Instead, he is fighting B-Egypt, in, within Egypt. In this context, Egypt isn't a place. After all, they're in the middle of the sea. Egypt is her technical might. With this plague, Hashem undermines the last frontier of Egyptian strength. He has not only shown his mastery of nature, he has shown his mastery of their own handiwork. Only with this plague is the lesson complete. The lesson for us is straightforward. We should not imagine that we are God simply because of our mastery of our own world. And we should not imagine that we have a right to enslave others because of our technological development. If we do this, we may be greatly surprised when the wheels come off. In recent years, our mastery of our own world has entered an entirely new phase. We are on the cusp of being able to read and effectively edit every aspect of our own genetic code. We can redefine ourselves on the most fundamental physical level. Our power seems unlimited. Our technology has moved beyond the physical and beyond the mechanical, beyond the electronic, into the nature of life itself. We are like gods. Or at least we could see ourselves as being like gods until we got to the year 2020. Yes, our technology might still rescue us, but there is a significant chance that our technology created the monster in the first place. New York Magazine, hardly a bastion of conspiracy theories, did a piece that included discussion of some of the close calls of the past. In 1970, this is quoting from them, in 1977, a worldwide epidemic of influenza A began in Russia and China. It was eventually traced to a sample of an American strain of flu preserved in a laboratory freezer since 1950. In 1978, a hybrid strain of smallpox killed a medical photographer at a lab in Birmingham, England. In 2007, live foot and mouth disease leaked from a faulty drain pipe at the Institute for Animal Health in Surrey. In the U.S., more than 1,100 laboratory incidents involving bacteria, viruses, and toxins that pose significant or bioterror risks to people and agriculture were reported to federal regulators during the two, from 2008 to 2012. In 2015, the Department of Defense discovered that worm workers at a germ warfare testing center in Utah had mistakenly sent close to 200 shipments of live anthrax to labs throughout the United States and also Australia, Germany, Japan, South Korea, and several other countries over the past 12 years. 
In 2019, laboratories at Fort Detrick, where defensive research involves the creation of potential pathogens to defend against, were shut down for several months by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for breaches of containment. We imagine we're gods, but whether or not this virus is natural, this experience should remind us that we are not. The wheels can come off of our chariots as well. It would behoove us to remember our limits before we run headlong into the midst of the waters. The second face is political. Hard to imagine me getting more political than that, but you'll see. Now, in the political side, I want to discuss the perspective of the Bnei Israel. They, of course, do not imagine themselves as gods. Their perspective is very, very different. The Torah calls them chamushim, or fivers. There are various attempts to understand this, for myself, I tend to look at earlier instances of words or concepts to understand their later symbolic meaning. Five doesn't come up much, but it does come up in the story of creation. On the fifth day, Hashem created every living creature that creeps. Among them, he created insects, well, also fish and birds, but he created insects. And they are called sherets nefesh chaya, animated life that, that sherets, that creeps. At the beginning of the book of Shemot, the people are indirectly compared to insects through this word. When man is created, we are to peru or vu, be fruitful and multiply. But the Jewish people in Egypt, peru vishirtsu or vu, they are fruitful, they swarm, and they multiply. The people are chamushim, they are fifth dayers, they are like insects. And this is why they are so frightened of Paro's army. Even with the giving of the Pesach offering, they are far from free actors. In the face of the Egyptians, they are like bugs. They can be crushed. In fact, later on, they see themselves as like bugs in the face of the Canaanites. They call themselves like grasshoppers in the face of giants. This image sticks with them. This is why, as I read it, so much of the rest of Chumash is about taking a people out of slavery. It is about making a free people dedicated to the timeless, out of slaves, who cannot plan past the present. They were bugs, and then they were freed. That process is not overnight, but it starts here. So after the Egyptians are cast into the sea, after the Jewish people see their bodies on the shore, they sing a song. They sing the famous Azia Moshe. And after that, Miriam the prophetess sings the central verses of the song. I'll do it in English. Sing to God because he's pride of prides, the horse and rider he throws into the sea. Hashem has shown his pride, yes. He has shown that even the greatest of the sons of the powerful are still but men. But the second part of the verse lays out what is yet to come. On one level, the horse and rider have been cast into the sea, but why would that be a critical part of the story? There are 600 chariots that had our attention long, not long ago. Why not use one of those verses as a highlight? Paro's chariots and his host he hath cast into the sea, and his chosen captains are sunk in the Yamsuf. Why the horse and the rider? Sartre wrote a famous line about the Algerian-French conflict. He wrote, To shoot down a European is to kill two birds with one stone, to de destroy an oppressor and the man he oppresses at the same time. There remains a dead man and a free man. Reading that, I think this verse about the horse and the rider isn't about the Egyptians. It is about the Jewish people. The Jewish people were the slaves of Egypt. They were the pack animals. The Torah seems to compare them to insects. But perhaps they compared themselves to horses. They were tamed, domesticated, controlled. They were broken. But with the drowning of the Egyptian army, suddenly those horses are gone. 
to paraphrase Sartre, to drown an Egyptian is to kill two birds with one stone, to destroy an oppressor and the man he oppresses at the same time. There remains a dead man and a free man. You destroy the horse and the rider at the same time, and there remains a free people. This process, the process of truly realizing one's freedom, is out of reach for most slaves. Slavery haunts people for generations after it has ended, even centuries. Like victims of a rape seeing a rapist before them, slaves have a very difficult time truly escaping the past. The Haitians are a classic example. They're the only people ever to mount a successful slave revolt. They tried to replicate the crossing of the sea. They killed every white person on the islands in a fit of slaughter, but it did not grant them freedom. They remained barricaded and broken and governed by a tyrannical dictator until he died and the society remains an absolute basket case even today. Because what's important here is not to kill your oppressor. What's important here is a change of mindset. What the Jewish people see is not just the bodies on the shore, the Jewish people recognize that the people who had once occupied those bodies, the nation that stands before them, has no real power over them. Natan Sharansky once said about his time in prison, I liked very much during interrogations to tell the team of interrogators anti-Soviet jokes. They were almost bursting with laughter, but they could not laugh. And I said to them, you can't even laugh when you want to laugh, and you want to tell me that I'm in prison? and you're free? The lesson is, f is clear. Freedom is a mindset. The destruction of Paro's army wasn't about killing the Egyptians. They could always raise another army. It was about the Jewish people learning that they were protected. It was about realizing that a greater power was protecting them. And this realization, more than any physical reality, is in fact the first step on the road to freedom. Let's go on to trivia here. Number one, I missed this in the prior episode, but we have the commandment to axe the neck of, neck of a donkey if we don't redeem it. Why? Well, if the Jewish people don't dedicate their future to Hashem, as we see with the Pesach offering, then they are being stubborn like the donkey. They are being stiff-necked. In this case, there's no reason for their survival. The axing of the donkey's neck, which you'd never actually do because the lamb is worth less and can be eaten, is a reminder that we don't actually have to sacrifice ourselves to dedicate our future to Hashem. Number two, Moshe continues the tradition of the unvoiced prayer in this reading. Even though no words are recorded, we know Moshe prays to Hashem because God says to him, Why do you cry out to me? The Torah never says Moshe cried out. He was telling the people to do things. Instead, it was his soul calling to Hashem, calling for protection. Hagar, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov all have similar unvoiced prayers. The prayers they utter when they cannot go on without divine intervention. Number three, in the Pesach Seder, we compare the number of plagues in Egypt to those of the sea. The discussion seems farcical. Why would we think the splitting of the sea is somehow the equivalent of 50 or 250 plagues in Egypt? It's like a child asking which is better, a monkey or a car. It's a nonsensical comparison. But perhaps this numerical analysis is actually a struggle to grasp something a little more fundamental. It took 10 plagues to convince the Egyptians to act freely and chase out the Jewish people. Remember, the Egyptians had been enslaved by Yosef. But of course, the Egyptians imagined themselves as masters, so freedom was not so hard to grasp. They went into the sea, after all, as a free people. 
The Jewish people were different. They saw themselves as slaves. And so it took 250 plagues to convince the Jewish people of their own freedom. My brother points out that, a miracle, that the miracle of the crossing occurred before the gods of Egypt and Canaan. It happens before Pihirot, before the mouth of, mouth of Hirot, and in front of Baal Tzephon. Baal Tzephon literally means the master of the north. He would seem to indicate a divine boundary between the edge of Egypt and Canaan, between the gods of Egypt and the gods of Canaan. But the Egyptian god seems to foreshadow what is about to occur to the Egyptians. To quote the ancient histor- history encyclopedia, Cherti, who I think is what Hirot is referring to, was a ram-headed god of the underworld who ferried the dead on their last journey into the afterlife. The dead were greeted by their deities when they arrived in the afterlife and were then brought to the Hall of Truth for judgment by Herti. Number five, in Az Yashir, the Jewish people plant the seeds of future troubles. The first is that they see themselves as horses when the Torah seems to put them a little lower on the food chain. The second is how they see the source of their redemption. Aziv zimratya ve'ahili lishua. If literally translated as my strength and the tune of Hashem has become my salvation. There are other ways people translate this. Rashi, for example, goes to great pains to argue the Yud at the end, which normally implies my, is actually just part of the noun for strength. He translated it, translates it as, the strength and vengeance of our God has become to us a help. But if we read it in the simplest sense, we can see the first seed of a growing self-worship that we'll see flowering later. The Jewish people ascribe some aspect of their redemption to their own strength. There's a reason Hashem has to keep reminding the people that He brought us out of Egypt. We seem to have a particularly hard time remembering that. And number six, this one's a fun one. Why is Azashir laid out like it is? The answer is actually pretty simple. The two sides which wave in and out are the waters. You can see them waving. The middle is the people, the column marching through the middle of the waters. If you don't believe me, look at the song. In many printings, you can find proof in the last line of the song. On the left is the word yam for sea, and on the right is the word yam, also for sea, same word, and in the middle is the phrase uvne Yisrael hachu be'toch, and the Jewish people walked on firm land in the middle. This is arguably the only picture in Chumash. It's ASCII art. I think it speaks to the childlike nature of the people at this time. They learn with food like matzah and bitter herbs. And they learn with pictures. For the structural part, I'm going to dip back into the process of freedom. This process is critical to human fulfillment, and we've seen it falter so often. Some revolutions succeed, as in the Czech Republic or Poland. But many, many revolutions fail. The Arab Spring was largely a series of failures. Putin's current power in Russia suggests the Russians never really broke free, although they might yet break free. Just like the Jewish people... Other people who were enslaved want to return to the mental comfort of slavery, in which they do not decide, but in which they are also not responsible for poor decisions. One could argue that the violent patterns of South American democracy that show that some countries are still struggling for freedom in the aftermath of Simon Bolivar's revolution from European powers 200 years ago. The granddaddy of revolutions, France and Russia in 1917, were revolts that led almost immediately to a new form of dictatorship. So what makes a revolution successful? What enables the people to actually be free? As I see it, it actually isn't that hard to draw a line. If the people already have a civic culture, that culture can step in and enable a free society to be successful. 
the trade unions in Poland serve this purpose, but if that civic culture, that unspoken law and expectation and sense of responsibility is lacking, then the society disintegrates and it demands a new master. It demands a new master because it lacks the tools to function without one. The great question, of course, is how do you free a society that lacks this cultural underpinning? Late in his life, Bolivar decided that dictatorship was a necessary step on the road to freedom. He needed to teach these civic values through dictatorship. He may not have been wrong. We've seen Taiwan emerge as a great free society from military dictatorship. We've seen South Korea do the same. But of course, both of these societies had strong civic underpinnings prior to their dictatorships. So it wasn't so natural for them to emerge in the way that they did. So the question remains, how do we create freedom from slavery? This is not an academic question, of course. So much of the world is unfree, but it's not simply a matter of overthrowing governments to get to a place where they can live free and responsible lives. The Torah, in my reading, seems consumed by this question. Hashem himself seems to struggle with it, suggesting at more than one point that the people should just be erased and replaced with something better. They were broken. Nonetheless, the process we see is somewhat successful, and it starts with the splitting of the sea. It continues, however, right after the splitting of the sea. As pointed out by Rav Bick from Yeshivat Hartzion, whose online lecture I heard, after the crossing of the sea, the people are successfully denied food and water. They are trained as slaves are trained in order to follow Torah. That lecture said that when you need to learn, they needed to learn three things in a particular order: first a chok, which the Rav defined as a command you can't understand, then Shabbat, and then Torah. This was the path to becoming the Jewish people was also the path towards a religious Jewish life for an individual. I'm going to take his initial idea that these denials are a way of training slaves, and I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction. After all, my focus is somewhat different. Immediately after the crossing, the people come to Mara. It means bitterness, where the waters are bitter and undrinkable. For three days, they do not drink. They complain to Moshe, who complains to Hashem. Hashem says Moshe is a tree. Moshe tosses into the waters, and the waters become sweet. Hashem declares the decree and an ordinance which says, to paraphrase, if you listen to Hashem, you will be free of the Egyptian diseases. This predicament is described as a test. Like a test of Avram, the people's thirst is both a challenge and an opportunity for growth. So what is going on here? On one level, the people are denied water. They are showed the mysterious power of Hashem, and then they are given sweet water. They are being trained. But the symbolism of the tree suggests a deeper lesson than simply following that which you do not understand. Trees are consistently identified as gifts of Hashem. Think of the garden and Adam's fruit. This concept of gift is why there is a commandment not to harvest trees for three years after planting them. We intentionally disconnect our act of planting from that of harvesting. Fruit are a gift of God. In this story, the water is bitter. Biologically, water is key to life because it can supply nutrients to cells and remove impurities from them. It is a source of renewal. Water is also a stand-in for spirituality. In Genesis and Bereshit, there are four rivers in the garden. Two are physical rivers, but two are spiritual. There are spiritual waters that can refresh us or even bring us down. At this point, the Jewish people have a bitter relationship with Hashem's spiritual essence. They are like kids annoyed at having to take instruction. They are still stuck in Egypt, the Egyptian mental disease. 
but then they act as commanded and put one of Hashem's gifts into the water. By doing as they're told, they make his spiritual waters sweet. The symbolism, as I read it, is by using Hashem's gifts, the commandments, we can appreciate Hashem's spiritual presence. And with that recognition, we can begin to take on the purpose and responsibility that establish the basis of a successful and free nation. In other words, responsibility starts with an understanding that obeying a higher moral authority is the path towards ultimate reward and success. Shortly afterwards, the people face another challenge. This time, they have no food. They murmur against Moshe and Aaron. Their complaint is very specific. They wish they had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when they sat by the flesh pots and ate bread to satisfaction. It would have been preferable to dying of hunger in the wilderness. In response, Hashem says he will cause bread to rain from heaven, which the people should collect daily. This bread will teach them that Hashem brought them out of Egypt. The bread has a variety of interesting qualities. Among them, no matter how much is collected, each person gets just enough to sustain them for a day. This amount is universally referred to as an omer, seemingly irrespective of the size of the person involved. If a person gathers too much and tries to store it, it is eaten by worms. They must collect it every day and never store it. Hashem states that if the people will gather the bread each day, the omer of man every day, and twice as much on the sixth day to store it for the Shabbat, it will demonstrate that the people will walk within the Torah. As part of this process, the night before the man is delivered, the people look towards the wilderness and the glory of Hashem appears in a cloud. It is one of the great revelations of Hashem's presence that form the backbone of the people's relationship to God. With the delivery of the man, the people can see the glory of Hashem himself. On the first level, Hashem's tests involve Shabbat itself. But as with the tree and the bitter waters, there is more going on. Before the cycle of training is concluded, Hashem tells Moshe to store some man as evidence of the food Hashem has granted the people. Moshe tells Aaron to fill an omer of the man and place it before Hashem. Aaron places the omer before the testimony. Then the text adds notes that the people ate the man for 40 years until they came to settle land. And then the text adds that a particularly incongruous verse in Omer is one-tenth of an Eva. The final verse is unusual for a couple reasons. First, the Omer was already in use. It doesn't need a definition. The city of Omerah, Gemara, was named after the measure of grain, and Kedarla Omer, the leader of the four kings, was named for his control of the Omer. The Omer is not new. As for the tenth of an Eva, that measurement is not used interchangeably as a unit of volume with the Omer. In later verses, the sin offering and the appointment offering of the Kohanim include the commandment to bring one-tenth ephah. The word omer is not used, despite it seeming to be the equivalent of one-tenth ephah. So why are we mentioning this ratio here? I think this ratio is key to unraveling and understanding the story of the man going all the way back to the beginning of it. The omer is the amount of food required to support an individual for a day. Kedarla Omer's name suggests that he cornered and circled the food market, the food that people needed in order to survive. And Omerah was probably named for its agricultural productivity. Here, the people eat an Omer a day. Later, we are commanded not to collect a leftover Omer from the field. It is there for others to consume. It gives the poor sustenance. And we bring an Omer of our first grade's grains before Hashem as an offering. This offering is a recognition of Hashem's gift of sustenance to the people. It has overwhelmingly positive connotations. But the ephah is different. 
The root for Epha is to bake. In Joseph's dream, the place of Egypt is occupied by the baker, who has his head lifted up from upon him. When the Egyptians make bread, they bake it. Egypt, with its bread and bakers, represented the fullness of human self-regard. Those who believe bread is their own product fail to recognize the role and gifts of Hashem. Our sin offering is thus representative of a fraction of that same conceit. When we bring one-tenth of an ephah as a sin offering, not an omer, one-tenth of an ephah, that ephah is far more negative in its connotations. Going back to the story of the man, the story began when the people wished for specific things. They wanted to sit by the flesh pots and eat bread to satisfaction, even if they were to die in Egypt. How does the man address this? Well, the people wanted temporal satisfaction. They wanted short-term fullness, even if it meant Hashem would have killed them in Egypt. Specifically, they are drawn to flesh pots and bread. In answer to their request, Hashem provides an omer for every man, every day except the day of rest, the Shabbat. They are worried about their food. They are not sure they will have enough. They lack trust. The man teaches them, trains them to trust. They are cons commanded to consume it all day, trusting that Hashem will provide more the following day. So long as they are not in settled lands where they can grow their own grain, the consumption of the man without hoarding is a tremendous sign of divine trust. The worms that eat the grain are called tolashani. That color, those words are used for a color later on in the Mishkan to imply a connection of trust. But the lessons go deeper. At the end of the story, we learn the mitzvah of Shabbat. The word Shabbat, at the end, is a substitution for the word savah, which is spelled the same way because there's an ayin at the end. They wanted savah, satisfaction. That's what they had in Egypt. But as God's people, their destination is not eating their fill and then dying. Their destination, their path, is one of trusting Hashem for the six days of creation and then connecting with Hashem on the seventh day of rest. The real road for human fulfillment towards human satisfaction <clears throat> is trust in the Almighty and investment in the timeless. When Aaron places a jar of this food before the testimony, he is providing a contrast to the people's initial desire for a pot of flesh. The root of the word for testimony, aid, is a word used for the people themselves. The root used here for jar, tzanen, is only used once later. Those who remain in Canaan will be at tzanen in the sight of the people. The suggestion is of an unpleasant pain. The jar is placed as an unpleasant reminder in the face of the people of their initial desire for a pot of flesh instead of the far deeper satisfaction of trust in Hashem's sustenance and Hashem's rest. We are also told they will be sustained by the man for 40 years until they reach settled lands, namely the borders of Canaan. Settled comes from the same root as sitting. They wanted to sit by the flesh pots of Egypt. Instead, they will come to a settled land and sit with the memory of Hashem's support. In this light, the Omer and the Epha are compared because that is the contrast the man brings out. The Omer fills a man's needs. The Epha speaks to man's conceit. The Omer with its trust is the future of the people, while the Epha with its conceit is to be their past. Shabbat is the road to timeless fulfillment, while eating one's fill and then dying was the path of satisfaction sought in Egypt. The Omer is but a fraction of the Epha, materially speaking, but it provides the road to, towards true satisfaction. It is with the Omer of Man that the people can trust in Hashem, beholding His glory and understanding that He brought them out of Egypt. The Epha is a testament to nothing. With this test, trust in the divine and the cycle of six days in work and one of rest is being established within the people. They are being inscribed with the basic morality of a nation in, this, in the image and service of Hashem. 
but still they are taught like slaves. They are taught through denial and then provision. The man is not the last of these tests. There is a third, and then a fourth test. The third test is again a denial of water. When the people are thirsty once again, Moshe complains to Hashem. He's angry at the people, but Hashem is not angry. Instead, he tells Moshe to take the staff that he used to strike the Nile and strike a rock in Chorev, where the Torah is given, so that water will come out of it. There is no commandment associated with this action. There is no test associated with it. The lesson is much more direct. Just as Hashem's staff, his tool, can pollute the waters of Egypt, it can provide water in the desert. Egypt's corrupted spiritual waters were murdered by Moshe's staff, but with a strike, that same staff can draw Hashem's spirituality out of desert rocks themselves. The message is both a promising and a threatening one. The people are like a desert rock. In Yaakov's blessing to Yosef, he calls him a shepherd of the stone of Israel. The word for stone then was Evan, but the rock here is a tzur, it means neck. There is a concept of being stiff-necked. This rock is us, to go back to that donkey. The people are bereft of spiritual value, but that can change, even if they must be struck for such growth to occur. Again, there is denial and provision, but this time the threat of future suffering is also brought to bear, of future strikes. The slaves are being retained, retrained through dictatorship. When we get to Parshat Chukat, we'll see quite a contrast in how you're supposed to deal with the people when they're leaving the desert. And then the famous battle of Amalek occurs. Amalek bears a grudge against the children of Israel. It goes back to Gadarla Omer. In the days of Avraham, there was a war between the four kings and the five kings. Gadarla Omer, who cornered the grain market, was on the side of the four kings. Stom and Omerah, fertile places, were rebelliously defying his market control, so he went to war with them. But along the way, he took the opportunity to lay waste to other potential competition. He destroyed the fields of Amalek, fields belonging to an innocent third party who were not at war with him. And he also attacked the precursors of both Sihon and Bashan. Avraham did nothing. After Lot was captured, Avraham attacked and defeated the four kings. He helped after Lot was captured, but not before. Because of the ease of his victory, it is clear he could have interceded earlier, but he did not. Avraham was worried that he had committed a great error, but Hashem reassured him that he had not. But Amalek had a different perspective. Not only did they have a different perspective, but over the intervening 400 years, they nursed their resentment. They maintained it despite Hashem's declaration that Avraham acted appropriately. Amalek has a contrary moral code, one that nursed in anger and destruction. The battle itself is very unusual. Yoshua, Joshua, takes an army to attack Amalek, climbs a hill, Haron and Chor. From his very prominent position, Moshe holds up the staff of Hashem. The staff of Hashem is the tool of Hashem, as we discussed when it was used to strike the rock. Moshe's arms are supported by Aaron and Chur. Aaron is the one who follows unquestioningly. Chur was a leader of the people for a brief time. He also shares a name with the Churim, one of the other innocent nations ravaged by Kedarla Omer. This suggests that one who might otherwise feel wronged can be brought to support Hashem's morality. So long as Moshe holds up Hashem's staff, supported by both those who follow unquestioningly and those who learn to follow, Israel prevails. But when he relaxes from the root Necham, Amalek prevails. So long as we lift up and represent the will of Hashem, we can overcome contrasting moral voices. 
But when we relax this representation, there are other moral voices that will be ascendant. And those voices will ultimately be dedicated to our destruction because we are incompatible with him. After the battle, Hashem says to Moshe, Write for this for a memorial Zocher in the book, and rehearse it in the ears of Yoshua, for I will utterly blot out the remembrance, Zecher, of Amalek from under heaven. Wiping out the memory of Amalek has nothing to do with forgetting them. There's no paradox here. It was Amalek's memory of nursing resentment for 400 years that had brought them into conflict with the Jewish people. Wiping out their memory is about eliminating their ability to maintain their anger across generations. Amalek adheres to a moral code which is dedicated to the destruction of the representatives of God's morality, a morality that encourages forgiveness over time instead of nursing grudges, instead of carrying on the battles we see in our neighborhood for thousands of years. Hashem's promise, and ultimately our responsibility, is to eliminate their ability to maintain those values over time. Amalek is accused not only of attacking the people, but of having no fear of Hashem. They do not submit to Hashem's morality. This combination of rejection and violence against God's people prompts God's promise that he will eliminate Amalek's memory from under the heavens. In a way, Amalek represents the final training of slaves. We are meant made to defend the morality of Hashem against those who would attack it, and as part of this, we are promised victory over those who would threaten us. To this point, the people have been trained like slaves. They are taught that there is spiritual sweetness in the commands of Hashem, that there is true satisfaction in the process of a godly life. They are taught that Hashem can draw spirituality from them despite their limitations, and that when they stand for the morality of God, they will be ascendant. Cast into modern times, and perhaps more secular perspective, we can see a road to freedom, the beginnings of a road to freedom. First, you have to understand that while the constraint of law seems bitter, it is actually a gift and the first step on the road to the sweetness of freedom. Second, there is true satisfaction in a society that works and rests, aiming for something more than just physical pleasure. Third, even unfree people can be a source of great spiritual value. And fourth, so long as those people stand for morality, they will be ascendant. These are only the first few steps on the road to freedom. We have 40 years of learning to follow, but they are critical first steps. As this is the structural section, I have one last question I want to talk about. If all, that is, if all of this work is needed to bring us to freedom, then why were we ever enslaved? Why not go from Avraham to ever-increasing freedom and responsibility? There's a lesson in the slavery. Hashem brings both good and evil. There is a purpose to it all. And until we accept that evil also has a purpose, we are not ready to be true servants of Hashem. The evil is there to teach us and to raise us up. We have to be able to learn. Maybe not as individuals, we may not survive, but as a people. We are the rock that is struck. We are the bush that burns. But despite it all, Hashem is in control. When we can understand that, we can hold up our staff in the face of his enemies, then like Natan Sharansky, we can be free no matter what our physical reality. I said this podcast was in memory of Sheila Rubenstein. As I heard from two of her children, she was a woman of elegance who somehow maintained that elegance despite the whirlwind that often surrounded her. And she found joy despite experiencing what might be the greatest of pains the loss of a young child. Amalek could not let go of the past. Slaves cannot escape their own mental prison, 
but she maintained freedom and elegance, despite an entire neighborhood of children running roughshod through her house. And she rediscovered her joy, despite losing a child. May she be an example to us all. May her memory be an example to us all. Finally, if any of the ideas in this podcast appeal to you or help you, then share them. You don't have to share them in my name. Go ahead and steal them. They'll serve their purpose just as well. Thank you, and Shabbat Shalom. Okay.